Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown show. A show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. We've all heard the old adage that the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. For many in the LGBTQ community in the United States, the other side of the fence has been Canada. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender rights in Canada are some of the most advanced in the Americas and in the world. But is the grass really greener north of the border? Today, I'm joined by Todd Ross. Todd is Canadian. He is Métis. Anne is the president of the Toronto and York Region Métis Councils. The Métis are a distinct Indigenous people in Canada, descendant from First Nations people who blended with European settlers and created a new culture and communities. Todd currently lives in Toronto and is moving to St. Andrews, New Brunswick this summer with his partner. He has witnessed it all. Not just the good, but the dark history of Canada's LGBTQ community. He served in the Canadian Navy from 1987 till 1990 when he was released for being gay. As a young sailor, he was investigated by the military police. The investigation lasted 18 months, and when he finally admitted that he was gay, he was released with an honorable discharge. In 2016, Ty joined two other former soldiers to launch a lawsuit against the Canadian government. And on November 28, 2017, the government of Canada settled a class action lawsuit. The settlement was on the same day Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made the historic apology to LGBTQ2 people in Canada. As part of the settlement, a $25 million reconciliation and memorialization fund was established. Todd serves as the vice chair of this fund. Todd has volunteered on many boards and is a founding member of Rainbow Railroad, a nonprofit organization created to help LGBTQ2 people around the globe seek safe haven from state-enabled violence murder, or persecution. Todd will talk about his life in Canada as a member of the LGBTQ2 community, the good, the bad, the real, and lessons we can learn from our neighbors to the north. Todd, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, you know, I mean, 
I found it, you know, we hear about Canada, and I think that many people have ideals about Canada. I mean, you know, it has a history of freedom. I mean, you know, I'm African-American, and how many members of the African-American community found their way to Canada in search of freedom? And But we've also heard, I've heard stories about what has happened to indigenous people in Canada. Um, but then again, on the flip side, here's all of these expansive LGBTQ rights. Now, have many hats. One of them is being part of a community that is an indigenous people of Canada descent. How did that frame your life? I mean, were you, I know that, you know, we know that there has been in the past discrimination about LGBT people, but were you also, did you first experience discrimination because of who you were outside of being gay? Uh, thankfully, no, uh, not, not personally. Uh, so I'm, I'm, uh, I, I present as white uh, and um, uh, did not uh, growing up uh, ever have people coming up to me saying, oh, you're Indian or anything like that because uh, nobody really knew. And in fact, I didn't know until I was in high school that I even had any uh, Indian blood. Um, and, and that speaks to the history of, of colonization in Canada uh, and the uh, the the racism against Indigenous people here, and that my family uh, went away from uh, any Indigenous culture to avoid any uh, any persecution. My mom uh, is Métis. Uh, my dad is not. Uh, my dad's uh-huh. kind of a blend blend of a bunch of things like Irish and French <laughs> and English and Danish. Uh, but my mom is is half Métis, half Irish. Uh, and when she was growing up, uh, her mother, who was full Métis, uh, would never acknowledge that, uh, that she had any Indian blood and, and sort of uh, threw that into the, to her children that um, we're not Indian. Uh, don't ever tell anyone you're Indian. Uh, you're, you, there's no need. And, you know, she denied it and it wasn't until kind of she was on her deathbed that we were able to start talking about our, our family mm. history and, and our culture. Wow. But, you know, it's funny. Okay, so here, you know, here she is, <clears throat> and you said on her, on her deathbed, but you had a secret, okay? You had a secret being Métis, but you had another secret, that you were gay. Did you like, mm-hmm. did you sort of like, did that, keeping that one secret, did that sort of like, oh, prepare you for, for living in the closet? Or, you know, did you, knowing that there is discrimination and you knew, okay, how do I deal with both of these? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I, I knew I was gay much, lo- much longer than I, I knew I was Métis. Because uh, I, I knew I was gay as a as a young kid, um, wow. uh-huh. but but my own internalized homophobia, uh, you know, everything that I was taught, everything that that was around me, um, wouldn't allow me to come out that that I ran away from uh, homosexuality, that I did not want to be gay, 
Uh, and and to me, that was that was the much worse secret than than uh, having uh, an indigenous uh, background. Um, and and you know, it's I, I stayed in the closet for a long time. Uh, I was in the closet when I was in the military. When I found out that uh, my family was, uh, had a Métis background, uh, it was something that I pursued and was very, uh, you know, I wanted to get involved with my community. I wanted to learn more, um, uh, which was kind of a different experience than, uh, than uh, uh, my homosexuality where I was ashamed of it. Um, I, I had some pride in, in wanting okay. to learn more about Métis culture and Métis people and my own personal family story. Mm-hmm. When you got ready to go into the military, though, I mean, were did you need to keep that quiet about not only being gay but being Métis? I mean, was there discrimination that that you would have faced if you had been fully aware of both and, and living that life? you know, fully involved in both communities? Yeah, and, and when I joined in the late 1980s, um, Métis were not really uh, recognized, uh, with the exception of uh, Métis were recognized in the, um, in the Canadian Constitution that was passed in the early 80s as a distinct Indigenous people. Outside of that, there weren't really any rights for Métis. So there was no need to... Uh, you know, to to speak or claim Métis heritage, nor was there any, uh, I felt, uh, any discrimination uh, against Métis people specifically within the military at that time, just because um, why I didn't personally experience any, um, but also I think it it was kind of just something that wasn't really talked about uh, or that many people cared uh, there were some First Nation people who uh, who were serving, and it was just kind of you know they're another person who's willing to pick up a gun type thing, mm-hmm. uh, and and there wasn't really any uh, um, any uh, physically harmful discrimination. Now you know I've talked to um, LGBTQ veterans here, and many of them, I mean it's interesting. Some of them joined. Um, hoping that this would help them get over their gayness. I mean, I've talked to trans veterans. I've talked to just queer veterans, and both of them thought, you know, well, if I join the military, I have to be, you know, tough, manly, you know, and that this is going to help me get rid of this gay. But often what that did was reinforce in them that, yes, they were, in fact, gay. You know, it was like, no, this isn't making it go away. This is who I am. When you went in, wanting to be closeted, hoping that you would be, for lack of a better word, able to pass as just being another another fella in the military and be able to serve. Certainly, and and you know, when I signed up, I was eighteen. Uh, I, so I, I swore an oath to Queen Elizabeth when I was 18 years old uh, to serve my country, uh, as we do here in Canada. Um, uh, shortly after I turned 19, I was so deep in the closet at the time uh, that I, I really hoped that I would kind of lead a straight life and that the military would help. Um, that said, I also had been in, in what we call army cadets, 
Uh, and cadets here is something that you can join at the age of 13, and it's kind of like a, a junior military program. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I had excelled in that. Um, uh, I'm, I'm from the province of New Brunswick, which is a small province in the eastern part of Canada. Uh, and, you know, by the time I graduated high school, uh, uh, I was recognized as being the top army cadet in the province of New Brunswick. It was something that the military was something that I had excelled in, that I loved the life. Uh, and, and something that I saw as a career that um, uh, I had enjoyed it for those past five years as a, as a youth and, and could envision that this is my life going forward. As a benefit I saw at the time is that I could also be straight uh, and mm. that I could, I could lead a straight life. Uh, I could ignore being gay. Uh, and, and, you know, at the time I really considered um, having a straight life is having a, what I saw as a more normal life. And, and that was really something I desired at the, at the time when I joined. What made someone suspect? What made them start to, and it almost sounds like, you know, like you were like harassed. I mean, it's like, you know, you're going to tell us that you're gay. What made them suspect that you were gay? I, I, I don't know the answer to that, truthfully. Uh -huh. uh, I, um, uh, I came back from uh, holiday leave uh, after about a year in the military. I was serving on board uh, HMCS Saskatchewan. Uh, I was a naval combat information operator and had a, had a secret classification. Um, I came back from my holidays having three individuals come up to me uh, each on their own and saying, you know, I had been pulled in by the military police. They were asking a lot of questions yeah. about you, and I was told not to tell you. Uh, yeah. So, and, and, you know, that speaks to the camaraderie on the ship, is that all three individuals came up to me, told me, and then said, you know, I, I'm not supposed to be talking to you. Um, but my suspicion is, is that somebody reported uh, mm -hmm. that they, they were concerned uh, and they thought that I was homosexual uh, and that that started this investigation that ended up lasting 18 months. Uh, and, you know, to, to get into it a little bit, the investigation was usually involved um, two people showing up uh, wearing, you know, a, a sports jacket tie, uh, driving a light blue K car. They would show up on the dock uh, at the ship I would be working, it was usually in the morning when they would show up. I would get called up to the, um, uh, to the dock uh, and told that I was to go with these two individuals, and it was always men. Um, so this, this started in uh, early um, 1989. Uh, so I would be driven away in this light blue K car, it was always a light blue K car, uh, be driven away, and I would be driven probably about, not very far, about 15 minutes onto another part of the base into the military police office, and then I would be told to wait. Uh, and, and these are, you know, sort of some of the tactics that they use. Uh, I'd be told to wait. I'd be left in the waiting area. Eventually, I'd be ushered into a small room, and, uh, you know, there was usually a two-way mirror and a table with some chairs around it. Uh, and then I'd be left to sit in the room for, you know, a half hour. Then somebody would come in, and they'd leave, and then they'd come back. And then, then the questions would start. And the questions started out with things like, 
you know, uh, your loyalty to the country. Uh, have you ever visited, uh, you know, the, the Soviet Union? Um, and very odd questions. And then it came around to, are you gay? Uh, and and I was so in the closet at the time that you know that's the part that really uh, really intimidated me uh, was oh my God they're going to find out I'm gay uh, I can't let them find out that I'm gay um, so this went on for a period of times uh, you know I always denied um, they would um, then eventually bring me back to the ship later that day. Uh, and then I'd be left alone. And then two weeks later, the same thing would repeat itself. I'd be picked up, I'd go in, I'd wait, I'd be interviewed. Um, and then after a few of these, they said, okay, uh, if everything you're telling us is the truth, we want you to do a polygraph exam, so a lie detector test. Uh, to which I said, of course. Um, and, you know, I'm sure at the time I was shaking and sweating when I agreed to it. Uh, and, um, you know, very, very nervous about what would happen with that. Uh, I did do the polygraph exam. Uh, it's, it's uh, you know, I'll, I'll explain it a little bit. You sit, you sit still in a chair. You have, uh, you have these wires hooked up to your fingers. You have wires hooked up across your chest. Um, you're, uh, you're given the questions, and in advance you're asked to go through the questions, and you can only answer yes or no. Uh, you can't extrapolate at all. So in the questions, buried in the questions, was the one, are you gay? Mm-hmm. And I was, I was horrified of, of what would come out with a polygraph. So uh, as, as I was going through, I kind of said, okay, they're, they're going to know if I answer this one question uh, and it's different from the other. So I actually devised a plan that... Uh, Every time they would ask me a question, I would immediately respond to it in my mind the opposite of what I was going to verbalize. Uh, And the result was it came back inconclusive. Hmm. Um, So they said, okay, you know, these results, they're not good, so we're going to have to do it again. Uh, At which point I I said, no, I'm not going to do it again. Uh, I'm done. Um, You know, I've done everything you've asked up to this point, and I'm not going to cooperate. Uh, and they left me alone for several months. Uh, they would follow me in the car when I'd be walking, not all the time, but every once in a while I'd be walking down the street and I'd be being paced by this light blue cake car behind me uh, mm-hmm. and, and sort of thinking, oh, what's going on? And, you know, they'd show up at different things where I was at and just making it clear that, you know, I wasn't off the hook. Uh, when they approached me several months later, they asked me to do another polygraph exam uh, I said, yes. Uh, at that point, I just wanted it to be over with. Um, we went through the polygraph exam. Uh, they asked the question, are you gay? Uh, and of course, they're going through before I'm actually hooked up, um, going through the questions in sort of a dry run. Uh, and at that point, I admitted that, yes, I was gay and broke down crying. And, and, uh, and they said, okay, we need to get this on the polygraph. Um, we went through the exact same thing again on the polygraph. I broke down. I said, yes. Uh, so I, you know, I, I sort of look back on it and it's like, I, I came out, uh, in a room with a two way mirror hooked up to a polygraph machine, uh, to military police, uh, sort of the way I was forced out of the closet. And, you know, I still, I still wasn't out of the closet at that point. I admitted that I was gay, but I had not accepted it myself. Uh, so it was a, 
it was a horrible, horrible time. I had just mm. turned, uh, I had just turned uh, 21 at that point. Um, and so uh, uh, for, a, for a 21-year-old to be sitting there in front of these, uh, you know, military police under interrogation, and they had isolated everyone from me, that I wasn't allowed to talk to people, uh, it was a very lonely time for me. Uh, you know, I mean, and that, you know, because I saw the video, um, it, it was you, and there was a woman who, who had also been in the military. Like you said, you were coming to, you knew, but you weren't out. And here, this was something that you had excelled in, that you saw a career in, and it was like, hey, you know, well, you're out. And that was in 1990. And then two years later, the, uh, what is it, the uh, CFAO 1920 was repealed, okay, and that allowed LGBT people to serve in the Canadian forces free from harassment and discrimination. And, you know, after two years previously, they had basically devastated your life. I mean, Mm -hmm. did you... What was your reaction to that when, like, you know, two years later, did you have flashbacks as to what, what had happened to you in doing that? And then, like, well, here, now, hey, oops, it's over, you know. How did that make you feel? Yeah, and, and I, I was, you know, I was very happy when I saw that, uh, mm-hmm. that uh, I, I remember um, – uh, reading about the court case, and there was an individual, she's a friend of mine, uh, Michelle Douglas, uh, who was a military police officer and was pulled in for questioning, and she admitted that, yes, I'm a lesbian. Um, and uh, they told her that she had to leave the military, and, and she challenged it in the courts. Mm-hmm. And it was, through, it was through her court case that, uh, that the military ended our ban on, on gay, lesbian, trans people serving in the military. Um, and I remember I, I had tried to go to university and I spent a year at university after, uh, and remember reading the headline as I was walking to school that, uh, Michelle Douglas had won her court case and was, was just so thrilled with it that I was so excited. Uh, I still wasn't out, so I couldn't tell anyone, (laughs) but, uh, Uh uh, but it was just so excited that this had happened. Um, and, uh, you know, and then a couple years later, just by a circumstance, um, uh, I jumped around a little bit. I ended up moving to Toronto and I was, uh, I had, I had found a job as a waiter in a small restaurant and, uh, was so excited one day because sitting at one of the tables in my section was Michelle Douglas and I had <laughs> recognized her from the pictures mm-hmm. and I was like, Oh my God, you're Michelle Douglas. Like you are my hero. Uh, so, uh, and, and we've stayed friends ever since. You know, it, it's fascinating. And I'm going to, because, you know, I'm gonna, I want to circle back to that because, okay, so much has happened in Canada. I mean, you know, like they, they lead, you know, not only, you know, in North America, but in the world and they're right. And I know, and I know that when we were talking, I said sometimes there's something about going to particularly Toronto where you can live your life. You know, you've got your, you're living your full authentic life. And here, you had gone from such a hard time, you know, leaving what you thought was going to be your career. You're in Toronto. Here is one of your heroes who has gained the right that you had. You're able to live 
you know, this life and see so many things happen. You know, there's same-sex unions. There's the change on things in the military. You know, uh, Toronto Pride is just, like, amazing and huge. I mean, you've got, you know, Justin Trudeau, who's, like, basically, like, a rock star, not only globally, but he's up here. He's waving the, the gay flag. He's ready to apologize, you know, I mean, he's, he's doing it. Why then, you know, I mean, and, and I know, and I know there will be some people that say, well, he, they should have just got over it. I heard your interview. I also heard the woman who had been in there that after all of this had happened, that here you were a part of, of this lawsuit. Why did you feel it was important? And, I know the answer, but I want to hear, in your words, why did you feel it was important, having seen all these changes and seen all these advancements, that you did this lawsuit against the Canadian government, but also how important was to have that historic apology? It, it was a bit of unfinished business for many of us that uh, those of us who had served in the, in the armed forces, uh, as well as those who had worked for the federal government uh, who were fired because they were gay and lesbian. And, and, you know, we had a similar experience in Canada as you had in the U.S. with the lavender scare, uh, with McCarthyism, with gay and lesbian people being fired from their jobs because there was this fear that, uh, that they would be blackmailed and, and would sell secrets. And, and so the same thing carried over into Canada. Uh, but it was an, a largely unknown chapter of our history in Canada. Uh, you know, the, the public image of Canada is that that sort of thing would never happen. Uh, but it was happening, and it was happening up to the mid-'90s. Uh, it continued to happen in Canada. Um, there, would, there was not a lot of, uh, of public recognition of what had happened, um, nor was there really a um, uh, kind of a, a solution provided for those of us who had been in that situation. An example is I worked for a politician uh, for the province of Ontario. Uh, he was appointed to a cabinet-level position, and I was offered a job uh, this was in 2003, so years after I had left the military. Um, I then had to go through a security clearance for this job, and, and I was fearful that I would not get the security clearance. I had no idea what was on my record. Um, uh, so it ended up being fine, um, but I still have no idea what is on my record. I've been through another, a couple other situations where I've had to apply for things and I've had to disclose that I was released from the military. And even though it was an honorable discharge, people come back and say, well, tell me a bit about what happened. Why were you discharged? Uh, and I'd have to go through the whole thing and, and explain to them about you know, this investigation and admitting that I was gay and being released. Um, and, and it hasn't been a problem when I've explained it but I'm still not, even after, you know, even after successfully suing my government, I'm still waiting to see my records. Uh, and that was one of the pieces of the lawsuit was having access to our records and ensuring that there's a notation on our records that explains that we were part of what we would call, uh, what we call the LGBT purge in Canada. Um, the, the other piece is, you know, we, we talk about, and, and I've talked with a few other veterans and, and people uh, uh, who have been affected, 
about kind of this double closet that, um, you know, you, you struggle to come out as being gay. Uh, once you're out as being gay, it's often not acceptable to talk about having been in the military. Uh, mm-hmm. there's, there's this perception within our communities that uh, serving in the military is bad. Um, so there's a lot of, of kind of us wounded veterans walking around and, and not physically wounded mostly, but, but uh, uh, emotionally and, and psychologically wounded um, who are fearful to talk about our experience. So it was one of the reasons why I felt it was really important to be involved with this lawsuit is to shed light on what happened uh, to correct some of the wrongs of what happened, and to provide education uh, so that it never happens again. Mm-hmm. You know, often here, like we talk to, to young people, and they have no idea of, you know, what has happened in the past. And now, like I said, you know, they can go in. This is not going to happen to young people. How important, though, you know, and and often we do want to, like, forget like the dark side of our history, you know, we don't want to talk about it. How important is it to you for young LGBT people who are even in high school who are involved in, in the program that you were, where you were involved in and they want to have a career in it, how important it is to them to know this history and what happened and, and how they got to do these rights? I, I think it's tremendously important. Uh, I, I, I think it's important that, you know, if there is one youth out there who hears the message that, uh, you know, it's okay to be LGBT, it's okay to be in the military, uh, it's okay to be you, um, I, I think that's tremendously important. Um, you know, as, as a young person growing up, uh, I, I didn't really have role models uh, you know, there were a couple of openly gay characters on sitcoms, uh, but it was they were they were largely comedic relief, um, and and you know I, I look to uh, the gains that we have had since I was a youth, and that was several several years ago. Uh, but the gains that we've had, where being a young person today. Uh, you don't have to make some of these tough decisions that we were faced with. There are still a lot of tough decisions that, I, that young people have to make, but at least we've taken some of these, uh, uh, some of these society pieces off the table that, um, that uh, we've kind of, uh, uh, you know, in a sense, we've, we've gone the road ahead so that, that it's a little bit easier for them to walk. Um, and, and I fully recognize that, you know, there are, there are so many things that, that young people today have to deal with that if, if, we, can, if we can make it a little bit easier, uh, and particularly around uh, the normalization of, of um, homosexuality and LGBT uh, peoples, if we, can, if we can do that piece for the next generations, uh, I, I think that uh, we can leave the world in a better place. That's great. But, Todd, we're going to take our first break here. And um, when we come back, I want to talk about the good <laughs> and, and messages. So we'll be right back. If you're just joining me, I'm talking with my Canadian brother, Todd Ross, here on Collections by Michelle Brown. And we'll be right back.
This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown, and we're talking about is the grass greener on the other side of the fence, the other side being Canada? You know, Todd, so much has happened in Canada, and you were there, like you said, you weren't quite sure. You were starting to, you know, you were really forced out. I mean, you had to, I imagine when you had to go home and people said, well, what happened with you in the military? And you had to find ways of expressing it, and then you had to come to grips with being who you were and saying, you know what, I am gay and living this authentic life. And it seems like about that time, all kinds of heck broke out in Canada in a good way for members of the LGBTQ community. What have you seen, and, and what do you think, did you not think, you know, when you were that, getting your discharge papers and you wondered like what's life going to be like what have you seen that you didn't expect in your lifetime you would see there in Canada you know since since I was released from the military uh, you know I, I ended up probably about two years later I had moved to Vancouver uh, on the west coast and uh, you know I when I first moved to the city, I knew two people. And one of the people who I had met uh, was an openly gay federal member of parliament. Uh, and he was the first openly gay member of parliament. And so I, I got to meet him. His name is Sven Robinson. Uh, and uh, got the chance to meet him. And, you know, we'd go kayaking together uh, uh, around the bay and have these conversations. And just you know the change in those two years from going to a place where you know sitting in this dark room being interrogated to kayaking in in the bay with uh, an openly gay member of parliament uh was just you know such a big change for me um and, and then meeting other people who were really trailblazing uh you know i i, I became friends with uh, another gentleman who was the first openly gay mayor of a large city in canada uh, glenn murray uh who's the mayor of winnipeg and wow. uh you know had some great conversations about him with him and and he had adopted a son as as an openly gay man he was able to adopt uh, and uh, just talking around the challenges of that. And, and um, then when I moved to Toronto a couple of years later, uh, getting involved with the, um, uh, with the right to marry. And, you know, I have, I have uh, no intention of getting married. I'm, I'm in a long-term relationship with my partner, but I will fight for the right for other people to get married. Uh-huh. And, and, and I was, I was, you know, pleased to be able to, you know, stuff some envelopes and do little bits uh, to, uh, to assist with that. 
uh, and then I got to work for an openly gay member of, of our provincial legislature here and uh, who then went on to become the, the deputy premier, which is like the lieutenant governor in, in the States. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and got to live in this life where being gay was, um, uh, was, uh, uh, was successful uh, was celebrated, um, and recognizing that you know living in downtown Toronto is a is a very different experience than uh, being in a rural part of the country. Uh, but really seeing those changes and seeing society change, and and particularly when I was working for um, uh, for the openly gay politician is kind of seeing these organizations coming forward who were traditionally homophobic organizations that. Uh, uh, you know, would come forward and say, well, we need your help. We, we know you're a, a gay person. Um, and um, seeing the change in them personally uh, and, and thinking that, you know, things can change, that institutions can change. And really, you know, it's, it's, we, we all want to leave a better world for those uh, uh, who are coming after us. Uh, and we all want to sort of be the best we can be. So how can we work together? And, and being a witness to some of that. Uh, and then seeing small changes, like uh, uh, met uh, the individual here who fought for same-sex survivor pension benefits. And, you know, recognizing that, uh, that we are oh, so fortunate that we're in a position that we're fighting for same-sex survivor pension benefits mm -hmm. uh, that other people are fighting for their lives in other countries around the world. Um, and, and we're now in a place where we've seen um, a lot of corrections uh, in society in Canada where uh, gay, lesbian, bi, trans people are, are getting their rights um, uh, each year improved. Uh, so, so going through the 90s, going through uh, the early 2000s and up to today, uh, I, I feel like I've been in a time where, uh, although it was very difficult starting out, that I've been witness to some tremendous change here in Canada uh, and, uh, and, and feel privileged by that. Now, you know, because um, we started talking about your military we have a lot of LGBT veterans who, for a lack of, of, of a better word, um, find that they have, like, PTSD because of some of the things that they went through in the military. And our Veterans Administration now is just sort of kind of sort of starting to recognize the things that these veterans have gone through and to try to help them. What is it like for veterans who went through the era when you were involved and um, and who are in there now, what kind of services are there for them? And are there, like, support groups and things? I mean, I was really moved by, and I can't think of her name, the late the woman who was in the video with you. I mean, I could see the pain in her face. That she was, they were, she had gone through a lot, you know, and I know that you did too, but what's out there? I mean, are people recognizing that, you know, yeah, you got this settlement, but there are long-term issues that need to be dealt with. And how is the government assisting veterans? 
Mm-hmm. And, and we've actually seen a great turnaround there as well. Uh, when, when I received my discharge, I was, I was told that I had no right to veteran benefits, uh, that I was not considered a veteran, uh, and, and don't even, even go to veteran affairs. Even though discharged? Yeah. Yeah. I was wow. told that, uh, do not go to veteran affairs, that uh, you have no right. Um, and, um, uh, and, and many of us were told this, uh, uh, who, who were released because they were, uh, uh lesbian or gay or bi or trans, um, that, um, we were, we were led away from veteran affairs, um, more recently, in the past, uh, I'd say, five years, um, individuals started approaching Veteran Affairs, and Veteran Affairs has started responding uh, to the point that uh, on the day of the apology, uh, a new hotline was set up. So we have a dedicated hotline within Veteran Affairs in Canada for LGBT people um, that uh, we can call this 1-800 number and have somebody who's on the line listening who understands what LGBT people went through in the military and is there to assist. Um, we, you know, I'd say uh, a large number of the people who were discharged uh, or, or even who weren't discharged but went through interrogation or you know, in some cases, abuse, uh, because they were LGBT. Um, many of us are living with, uh, with mental health uh, and PTSD. Um, and now Veteran Affairs is actively working with us uh, to ensure that, uh, that people um, uh, are receiving assistance. Uh, we've also, as a result of, of the class action lawsuit, uh, we've had some informal networks that have formed where um, for the first time we're meeting each other. Uh, before the apology with the Prime Minister, uh, you know, and, and at that apology, by the way, they were, uh, the Government of Canada brought in probably about 200 people to sit in the gallery of the Parliament of Canada uh, to witness uh, the, the, the apology by the Prime Minister. And it wasn't just the Prime Minister who apologized. It was the leader of every political party uh, stood up and apologized, and, and mm-hmm. we currently have um, uh, five political parties in Ottawa. Uh, so each of those leaders stood up and delivered a, an apology to LGBT uh, uh, service members as well as people who were employed by the uh, by the federal government. Um, but to that that day was the day that I had met uh, so many of my my sisters and brothers who had served uh till then you know probably the most of us who had been in a room was maybe three uh that uh we we never communicated with each other we didn't uh we didn't have any organizations established uh where we would get together uh so one of the one of the positive results of this is the creation of this this support network uh, and this really strong friendship of those of us who have had similar experiences uh, with the Canadian government. Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, I can, I can imagine. I mean, it was just like, like finding a family. It's like finding a family, but also finding people who you didn't have to go back and explain to them what it was like to have that car waiting for you and to go and sit for hours and look at that two-way mirror. They knew and, you know, to, to be able to look someone right in the eye and know that they knew exactly what you, what you did. And not only have felt that pain, but to feel that 
that vindication, that, that regaining that respect that was taken away from you just by being who you were. Uh, well, I mean, that is just like, it's just, I mean, I can, I mean, I can only imagine what it would be like to be in that room. I mean, it's just like, wow. Yeah. And to have every five parties, everybody stands up and says something. Okay. You know, <laughs> we talk about making it better for our youth. Do you, I mean, young people who are joining the military, if they need, do you have that thing where, like, if, if someone was like you, you know, I think I want to go in, you know, should I be out? What do you, are you able to provide that support for young people today who are going into the military or just you can show that, yeah, it gets better. It might be hard along the way, but it does get better. Do you find that role of being that, that person to sort of say, I'm here, let me listen. I'm not just going to tell you it gets better. I'm going to listen and help you find your way to that better place. Uh, I, I hope that we get there. Uh, I don't think we're there yet. Um, mm-hmm. one, one, of the, one of the parts of the settlement of the class action lawsuit uh, was the establishment of a, of a fund, of a $25 million Canadian fund um, that included in, in the requirements that we, uh, we set out with the agreement on what we would do with that money is education within the federal civil service, uh, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and the military. Uh, so working with those sort of the, those three different branches of the federal government to ensure that uh, training is, prov- is provided to every new person who comes in uh, that uh, they, they know what the, what the um, human rights rules are, uh, they know what discrimination is, uh, and they know the history. Um, so, I, so although we're not directly in a position where we're, we're kind of mentoring youth who are, who are looking for careers in the military, we have established through this fund uh, that, that there will be ongoing education within all federal departments uh, so that anyone going in feels safe uh, and they know um, what their rights are from the very beginning and others know what the rights are and what the rules are as far as uh, discrimination. Uh, so the, we're hoping that this kind of sets a, 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 a basis for individuals that they are feeling safe and protected when they when they join the military or when they join the Royal Canadian Mounted Police uh, or other federal civil departments. And does it have that like expansive because you know we know that okay it's not just like when you're in the military and you're on your base but there are vendors there are communities that serve and that they accept these rights and recognitions because of having that military, that seeing what has happened in the military and that, that presence? Yeah, and it's, um, you know, that, that's, we, we can't be responsible for everything, uh, mm-hmm. but hopefully, you know, with, with changes within the military itself or within federal departments themselves, there are kind of guidelines around anyone who wants a contract with the federal government uh, that they have to they have to meet standards and uh, included in those are are uh, uh, discrimination clauses. Uh, so hopefully we'll get to a point where 
even those people who are doing business with the government of Canada uh, understand what the uh, what the the rules of the country and the rights of individuals are uh, when they're when they're engaging um, in in any aspect of life, but particularly with uh, uh, within the contracts uh, with the government. Um, and and we do have some some strong human rights legislation within Canada uh, that. Um, that 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 protect individuals and and groups uh, from discrimination. You know, I like what you said. How you know how, and I totally agree with you. I would defend to the to the right for same sex marriage, but you said you know you don't want you're not getting married. You know, you're in a, a great relationship. Do you have protections? Is your relationship protected even though you haven't? gotten married you know do you find like as a couple that you're still as as protected i know i one the last time i was in toronto i was there with a partner and you know i felt my i felt our relationship was respected you know i didn't have to show a, a paper you know or anything like but do you feel like is is that the case that married or not that people recognize that your relationship is as valid and should be respected as if it was a heterosexual couple who were together and opted not to be married. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I know that, uh, that we have the same rights as a, as a heterosexual common law couple um, that, uh, you know, we, we have uh, not faced discrimination in Canada as a couple uh, that you know, it's it's never been an issue, and and I know that you know recently we in updated our wills and uh, and uh, you know sort of had the um, the discussion with the lawyer on on what was uh, 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 kind of where the law stood and everything, and we have the exact same rights as as a heterosexual couple would um, uh, have. So uh, you know, the the only time we had a problem. Uh, was uh, was entering the U.S. <laughs> where uh, uh, where um, we we presented at the uh, customs immigration officer as a couple, and we were told to get back in line that we were not recognized, and uh, and we had to fill out our own separate forms and come back to the front of the line with separate forms. <laughs> so. Well, and you know, and I think that that's why I said even and even with marriage you know, here, that that's why many people, and I have friends who went to um, Canada and got married because they felt like, and even now, without that piece of paper, you know, that their relationships still aren't recognized. You know, like if you went in the hospital with your partner and you don't have, you've got to have a whole bunch of papers in and hope that they'll recognize it. So they felt that that marriage was, was that important. Do you feel that, that Canada has come a long way as far as, like, going from beyond just granting the right to be married to, like, totally recognizing LGBTQ Canadians as citizens who are entitled to every right as every other citizen? Do you feel that it has, has come, has it come full circle, or is there still a ways to go? Uh, it's... it's um, it, I don't think we're 100 percent yet, uh, but but we're we're getting closer. 
you know, it, it was, we had similar experiences in Canada uh, at the beginning of the uh, HIV AIDS uh, epidemic where individuals were shut out of hospital rooms that, uh, you know, that their, their partner of years, uh, uh, they were not allowed to see them because the family would not allow it. Uh, or they did not have the protections and the institution wasn't allowing them to be involved in the decisions. Um, that was not very long ago. Uh, we still have some laws on the books here that, uh, that we are working to, uh, to get changed. Uh, we just had a change this week uh, with donations, uh, with blood donations, mm-hmm. um, that uh, it's, it's still an issue. Um, it, it has changed slightly that uh, previously uh, gay and lesbian people were not allowed to donate blood. Um, then it was changed to if you abstain from sex for one year, uh, you can donate blood. Uh, and this week it was changed to three months. Um, you know, it's, it's still, uh, it still should not be based on, on a person's, um, uh, uh, be, because they're LGBT, uh, we have sophisticated testing techniques that should be based and we know that every every bit of blood that is given is tested. Uh, so there should be no uh, discrimination against uh, lesbian, gay, bi, trans people. Uh, and, and the barriers for trans individuals for donation of blood are even greater. Um, so, you know, we're, we're still working away on pieces. Uh, you know, there's still some, uh, still some legislation around uh, uh, age of consent for minors, uh, where there's a differentiation between a heterosexual minor and a, and a same-sex minor um, uh, sexual um, uh, encounter. Uh, so, you know, these are, um, these are pieces that we want to see changed, uh, but we recognize that we have seen a vast amount of change uh, in Canada, but it's not 100% yet. Um, mm-hmm. there, there is still work to be done. We often say here, like, one of the things, like, we were chugging, we have been chugging along. We were chugging along until, really, they sort of, like, brought the fight to us to where it became marriage, and then we did that. But then we still don't have, you know, we're fighting right now for the Equality Act because in 30 of the 50 states, you can be fired just for being gay, you know, and we have a, a huge problem, you know, when you talk about homeless youth, LGBTQ youth are like right up there at the top of the homeless chain. And then we have a ban on trans in the military. We have trans people being being murdered and and disrespected even in depth by their communities. How did Canada get there? I mean, you know, like we, we see people, like we know we're trying to get people elected, we're trying to tell our stories, you know, because as people know us and tell our stories, it makes a change. How did Canada get there? Well, one, I'll, I'll start by saying that I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a uh, uh, an educator or uh, or a legal person, so it's just my opinion. Um, but um, but I, but I think there were a few factors uh, in. Um, you know, we're celebrating this year the not only the 50th anniversary of Stonewall in the U.S., but in Canada, we're celebrating the 50th year of the decriminalization of homosexuality. Uh, that that um, 
a lot of work had happened before uh, uh, Prime Minister uh, Pierre Trudeau, uh, Justin okay. Trudeau's father, uh, who was then justice minister, uh, made the change to decriminalize homosexuality. Um, the, uh, that was, some people see that as kind of a beginning. Uh, we then had the um, Charter of Rights and Freedoms uh, that was introduced in Canada. And a lot of the court cases that we've seen and a lot of our successes uh, in the LGBTQ community here in Canada has been through the courts. Uh, several times we've been uh, dragging, uh, dragging, kicking and screaming governments to effect change uh, because of our successes in the courts. And, and some of that has been due to the fact that we have a strong uh, Charter of Rights and Freedoms uh, that we've been able to have the courts uphold. Uh, so we have, um, we've, been, we've been blessed with some of those uh, legal changes that came early on, uh, and then we've been blessed with some very smart lawyers uh, and uh, with some judges who have sided uh, that we have seen change coming along uh, uh, through the years uh, to the place where we are now. Uh, but it's you know, we, I, I guess compared to other countries, uh, we've had, um, uh, we've, we've been, we've been moving along, uh, and we haven't had uh, many uh, setbacks uh, along the way, uh, but, um, but it, it, it has still been a struggle with a lot of suffering, and we, deal, we do still have issues like a large number of homeless LGBT youth uh, and, you know, and um, a large number of those youth are uh, Indigenous uh, uh, who are LGBT, uh, or as we say, two-spirited. Um, we, we also still have high numbers of suicide um, amongst youth. Uh, so society itself has changed. We've seen the normalization of same-sex marriage, uh, okay. where now there's a majority of people within the country who agree that same-sex marriage uh, should be legal and should be a right. Uh, that changed over time, when that was, you know, that was not the case when same-sex marriage was originally uh, being fought. That that our society has has come along and changed as well. Uh, and and you know if. In any fight, you eventually have to have society alongside with you, and and um, you know, and or those gains can go backward. and And we know that that uh, you know, we watched uh, friends and I, uh, and I watched in the U.S. with the transgender ban, and saw how quickly uh, things can change. That um, mm-hmm. you know, you 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 think that. Everything is going along fine, and and in the next moment, uh, you've got a major fight on your hand uh, that that came out of uh, you know well uh, I I see it as coming out of of nowhere. Um, okay. I, I guess there were some warning signs, but um, uh, you know how quickly things can change. That uh, that we all, always have to be vigilant. Yeah, well, we're going to take our second break here, and then I want to talk about the Rainbow Railroad, and also this vigilance that we have to have not only in our own backyard, but globally. So we will be right back.
Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. back here with Todd. Todd, you know, you know, that's what, what I think. And, you know, like you said, you're still coming along. You still have that. And, and sometimes it's easy to become complacent or to go like, hey, you know, we're on the right path. Not, you know, we don't have to worry about it. And, and things change. And just like I know that you watched the news and you saw how, you know, I mean, we went from having an administration that was being welcoming and inclusion, not only myself, but many friends, we were going to the White House, we thought we'd come a long way, to with an election, things change. And, you know, now we have a ban on trans and military and a lot of the things that we see are under attack. But not only here, but as you look around the world, things are changing and that we have to be vigilant. We see many people who are seeking asylum from countries where suddenly I know where I've met people from countries in Africa where not only are they being penalized and persecuted for being LGBTQ, but if their family doesn't basically turn them in, you know, that they can be, you know, locked up, you know, persecuted as well. What is the Rainbow Railroad and how did it come about? So the, the Rainbow Railroad is something that was established uh, about, um, uh, trying to get my dates here, probably around 2008 we first got together. Uh, and at the time it was a group of us. Uh, a group of us had, had traveled, and while we were traveling we had the opportunity to meet uh, a young individual who had escaped uh, from his family. He was, he was gay. He had been caught by family members uh, for kissing another boy. Uh, and his family basically cut him repeatedly, tied him up, and left him to bleed to death. Uh, he, he managed to free himself and, and ran away from his family uh, and was, uh, was living on the streets, uh, still a very young individual, we had the chance to kind of hear his story and, and uh, uh, you know, and, and kind of emptied our pockets and gave him all the cash we had to help him out. Okay. Uh, and, and he was also getting some local support. But at the time we said, you know, this is just not right. It's, you know, we've, we've got this happening and, you know, we're, we're in a privileged country um, where we don't have to worry about, um, uh, you know, our, our, uh, our family trying to kill us because we're gay. Um, and there are places around the globe that uh, there is state-sanctioned violence against LGBT people uh, or, um, or imprisonment. And so we said, what can we do as individuals? So 
we started getting together, and one of the things very early on we said is we're dealing with people's lives, so we need to take this slow. Uh, we can't rush into things because we don't want to screw up uh, and, uh, and endanger individuals. Um, so we established, a, uh, uh, I guess, a process where we worked with, with individuals in countries where we could get some sort of local cooperation or uh, almost verification. Uh, and we started working with these kind of individuals to assist us in identifying people who were at risk. Uh, and this, you know, sometimes it was people who were, who were uh, physically assaulted uh, and were in hiding uh, for their life, uh, you know, cases where individuals were, were assaulted by police officers uh, and were in hiding and, and fearful of, of um, being caught. Um, and we worked to get them routes of transportation out of that country uh, and into countries where they would be safe. Uh, so sometimes that was individuals going to European countries, sometimes that was individuals going to the U.S., sometimes that was individuals coming to Canada. Um, and, and we started out slow, so we started out with, you know, maybe uh, one person every month um, to the point that um, uh, we had to do more fundraising. Uh, each time we were buying airfare, uh, we were trying to get the person some support, we would connect them with locals once they arrived so that they had a support network when they arrived. Um, and, and now the organization works with the Canadian government. Uh, they were very involved. I, I'm no longer on the board of, of the organization. I stepped down. Uh, but most recently, they've been involved with the Canadian government in, in getting people out of Chechnya. Uh, where the Government of Canada has worked with Rainbow Railroad to uh, help LGBT people escape state-sanctioned persecution, um, working with individuals in Africa, in, uh, uh, in, uh, in some of the Americas, uh, and really kind of almost every corner of the globe, uh, individuals come forward, uh, identify that they're at risk, or sometimes we're approached by third parties saying, you've got to help this person, um, and we work to get them to a place where they will be safe. You know, we have Freedom House here, and uh, many of the people who are at Freedom House are asylum seekers for a number of reasons. But often, like you said, um, there have been some members of the LGBTQ community who are, like, afraid of being found out and basically left with, with clothes on their back and, you know, then trying to find someplace, someone to, to help them connect with a community or get to someplace where they could be safe. And, you know, it's just like, like you said, it's huge because really there are more and more countries and repressive governments that are, are coming out, which, I mean, which is just like amazing that we see these governments that are coming back and are turning back the hands of time really to where we thought that the world was becoming more compassionate and more inclusive. And in fact, you have more people who are on the run. Was it modeled? I know I saw the Rainbow Railroad, and of course I thought of like the Underground Railroad, which was like a series of places, you know, that helped slaves get to, to freedom. Was it 
based on a model like that? I mean, and how did you connect with with different countries that would accept people? Yeah, so so absolutely. You know, uh, it it was modeled, and and the idea of the underground railroad uh, was something that we discussed early on, saying, you know, we need we need kind of an underground railroad for LGBT people around the globe uh, mm-hmm. who who uh, are at risk. Um, and so, uh, so the, the railroad part was, uh, was, uh, really homage to, uh, the underground railroad, uh, and, and how we wanted to kind of, um, uh, uh, take from the learnings of that to, to try and create a modern system. Uh, what, what we would do is when we found an individual who needed assistance is, um, we'd often work with them and see if they had a place that they could go. Uh, so if they knew somebody who had gone to, uh, to a country uh, that they could connect with, or if they didn't know somebody, but they, you know, they, they desperately wanted to go to the Netherlands or something uh, like that, um, we, would, we would reach out and try and find connections there that once they arrived on the ground, uh, that uh, we could connect them with somebody locally um, and then that local person would kind of take over or that local organization would take over. Uh, you know, in a place like Toronto, there's, there's uh, a lot of supports available, uh, including the, uh, the YMCA has a large uh, LGBT refugee program. Uh, we have the Metropolitan Community Church here, which has a large... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, refugee uh, uh, support network, um, and we we make sure that people were connected in with uh, uh, with supports once they got on the ground. What um, what our model was really was to provide the means of escape, um, and then utilize the existing services to connect people to those services. So then we could help the next person who needed to escape. Hmm. Well, you know. Um and the Rainbow Railroad is still up and running. You just stepped down from the board, right? Correct. Yeah, it's up and running, and they've actually started a U.S. Uh, uh, chapter, uh-huh. uh, so operating with a, a separate foundation out of the United States um, and uh, working with uh, with people uh, to, to to get them through uh, through networks in the United States versus networks in Canada. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, it just sort of shows there's no coincidences because, like I said, I have people I know who are in um, in Chicago who have been working um, with people, asylum seekers. And what was funny was that it used to be like they were able to always – I go to this conference, and they were always able to get um, certain – from certain countries, people able to come in. They get them, like, you know, visas to come in for short term. But recently, like in this past year, when they got ready to do it, they could not get those because they said, oh, they might not go back, you know, because they knew that there had been some who had come seeking asylum. So now I have a resource. But, you know, it's interesting, you know, how we started out talking about your connection as president of the Toronto and York Regions Métis Council. Okay, when you were saying back then, you know, that was like sort of you didn't talk about it and everything. Now here you are, again, involved with your community, the Métis. And I'm, what I'm wondering is, is there an LGBT component with, within 
that community because I know here we have um, people who are are indigenous people here who are are coming out. Um, We are creating change, which the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force, uh, it's a conference that they do every year. They had it here in Detroit. And we had some um, Native American people who came who wanted to talk about their history and their LGBT portion of their community. So now that you are, the Métis community is coming, you know, there's more coming out and happening about them and you're involved at this part. Is there LGBTQ community or component to that work? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we, we use the term uh, two-spirited. Um, okay. that, uh, that is often First Nation people use the term two-spirited. Métis mm-hmm. people uh, also use the term, term two-spirited. Um, referring to kind of a, uh, both a male and female spirit. Uh, that uh, that that we have as two spirited people, um, we we often refer to uh, um, homophobia as something that was a colonial concept. Uh, that before colonization, um, homophobia was not a part of the indigenous culture. That uh, that there are examples of indigenous people who were revered in their communities, uh, who um, uh, you know. Uh, in some cases, lived uh, as same-sex partners, um, were seen as uh, wise individuals within the community, mm-hmm. individuals who could sort of cross both uh, uh, traditional male, traditional um, uh, female roles within the community. Um, and then with colonization, everything kind of <laughs> hit the fan. Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so... Um, so within the Métis community now, uh, we have um, we have a uh, uh, elected president within Ontario, who's the president of the Métis Nation of Ontario, uh, who um, uh, is a friend of mine, and she is two spirited. Uh, so we have our provincial leader is a two spirited individual. Um, then uh, we have a, a group that uh, we had our first gathering um, uh, just last year of two-spirited people from across the province of Ontario who got together for a weekend to sort of discuss what does it mean for us, uh, what programs, supports uh, do we need within the two-spirit Métis community, um, and, and what's, what do we need going forward. Uh, and, and that was something that was organized with the support of um, uh, uh, we had, a, we had a vote at what we call our annual general assembly where Métis people from across Ontario uh, get together. And one of the resolutions at this, at this meeting was to support the establishment of a two-spirit uh, Métis um, group. And uh, we had, out of probably 200 people in the room, uh, we had one abstention and nobody mm. voted against it. Uh, that, uh, you know, it, it was just this tremendous feeling. I remember watching this elder gentleman get up to the microphone as the first speaker, and I thought, oh, no, here we go. And, uh, and uh, you know, I, I shouldn't have made an assumption because he, he started off the, uh, the comments by saying, my granddaughter is two-spirited. I'm here to support her. Uh, and so it was, it was a, a tremendous moment, but, um, there are, um, 
there, there's a lot of support. There's still work that we have to do um, that, uh, you know, coloniz- colonization really took its toll. Uh, and and uh, there's, there's still a lot of struggles we, uh, we have to work through. Uh, but I'm happy to say that, uh, that my community is, um, uh, is, is there with us and, and working with us to ensure that uh, uh, Two-Spirited Métis people uh, are at the table and have a voice. Now, you know, we wear multiple hats. Okay. So one of the things that came out from this conference was here the LGBT community at large wasn't as knowledgeable and as aware as they should have been about two-spirited individuals. In fact, there was one person who, you know, taught inclusion and diversity, and it was like, well, what is two-spirited? And it was like, you know, and and so it was really important that we brought that community in and had that interaction. The larger LGBT community in Toronto and York where you're at, how inclusive of there are they aware of two-spirited community? And are those conversations happening about what colonization, the effect of colonization had on LGBTQ history? Because that is really real. Two-spirited people were honored, and colonization came. And so that's part of our, our greater LGBTQ history. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, uh, you know, in, in the, going back to the LGBT purged uh, uh, group, the, the, the board that we've established and the work that we have going forward, uh, one of the pieces that we're doing is we're working with the Canadian Human Rights Museum, uh, which is based mm. in Winnipeg, uh, to establish a, um, uh, a, a museum uh, learning exhibit that speaks around, around Canada's history with LGBTQ2 people. And we've, we've asked that uh, they don't just start at uh, the establishment of the government of Canada, that they begin with the story of two-spirit people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and often, you know, when, when, uh, when I talk about uh, uh, LGBTQ2 people, I often like to start out by saying to LGBTQ people, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, ag- acknowledging that two-spirited people were here first uh, and, and are at the beginning. Um, so um, we've asked the museum when they're, when they're creating the exhibit, and, and we'll work with them on this to ensure uh, the inclusion of two-spirit people. We, we saw last week, uh, as, as the Government of Canada launched the um, uh, celebration around the 50th anniversary of the uh, decriminalization of homosexuality, they released a coin, uh, and it's called the Equality Coin. And it's the first time uh, that I'm aware of any mint that has issued a coin specific uh, uh, in, in general circulation, specific to acknowledge LGBTQ2 people. Um, so the equality coin, al- although there are some, uh, some people who, who were not happy with kind of saying that, well, 50 years, the government hasn't fixed everything, nor did it begin 50 years ago, and I acknowledge, uh-huh. I acknowledge those, uh, uh, those, um, those points. Um, 
there was an event that happened in Winnipeg last week where uh, uh, the Mint, the Canadian Mint, invited, um, they were doing a coin exchange and they invited some individuals from the local Winnipeg community to, to be present. And uh, it was pointed out to them that they had excluded Indigenous people and two-spirited people uh, specifically uh, from this equality coin uh, event. And so uh, they, they apologize for it, but we still have a lot of learning to do in that um, uh, that recognition here within Canada and even within our government agencies of, uh, of the, the role of two-spirited people and the inclusion of two-spirited people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as I'm thinking, I'm sitting and thinking, you know, and we're talking about, you know, on this continent, but, you know, in every culture, I mean, that, that's one of the devastating effects of colonization worldwide, that there have always been two-spirited people and that they've been they're erased. And, how, and we have to reclaim that not only here but globally. And, you know, as part of recognizing, you know, like I always tell people, you know, being gay isn't brand new. We've been here since, you know, the beginning. Yeah, and we need to recognize and acknowledge that and learn more about our history because, you know, um, you're getting ready to move to New Brunswick with your partner. How will your work continue with this move? Yeah, and I I will... um... Uh, so I, I'm getting ready to move to a part uh, of New Brunswick. It's called St. Andrews by the Sea. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a, uh, a small town of about 1,800 people in winter. It, it expands in the summertime. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the town's history actually was, uh, uh, was, uh, it was established by loyalists from Maine uh, who moved uh, across, the, in many cases, they picked up their homes uh, and shipped their homes to St. Andrews um, hmm. because they, they uh, wanted to uh, live under the king at the time. Uh, so that's the history of the town that I'm moving to. Uh, prior to that, it was home to the Pasamukwadi people, uh, which uh, uh, is a, is a uh, Wabanaki people in Maine uh, and in New Brunswick. Um, but uh, uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful little town on the sea, uh, and it happens to be about 30 minutes from where my parents live, uh, so, so that's a benefit. Uh, but we're moving to the small town. Uh, I'll, I'll continue to work, and, and I, I largely do contract work, so I'm able to do it uh, from, uh, from wherever. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll continue to be on the board of, uh, of the LGBT Purge Fund, uh, where um, we, over the next five years, which is, excuse me, which is the mandate of, of our board, uh, we hope to be in all parts of Canada. Uh, so we want to ensure that, uh, that we're visible in, uh, from, the, uh, from the west to the east to the north, uh, and the center, um, so I will be able to uh, to work from New Brunswick, but as well as uh, uh, have some travel around the country uh, as we go out and meet other uh, individuals who uh, who were with the federal civil service uh, or in the military mm-hmm. or in the RCMP uh, and work with them over the next five years. So I, I will continue on with this work. Uh, the the piece that 
um, I have to kind of step away from is uh, I, I can no longer be president of the Toronto and York Region Métis Council uh, because I won't live in Toronto. Uh-huh. <laughs> so. Uh, uh-huh. Uh, and, and there isn't uh, really a Métis community on the East Coast uh, that uh, Métis were largely in the, um, uh, in the uh, fur trading areas, which were largely Ontario and westward. Um, and uh, the Métis that are in the East or, uh, you know, the ones that are connected to these historic communities, the Métis historic communities, uh, are people like my mom who moved there uh, um, uh, l- later in life sort of thing. So uh, so I won't have a lot of Métis people around me, but I know that there's mm-hmm. a lot of LGBTQ2 people around. So uh, looking forward to, uh, uh, to doing some new work down there as well as continue to work on the fund. So, okay, now when we started talking, you said how, you know, your mother, you know, the whole Métis thing, you didn't talk a lot about it. Okay. Then you were gay, you came out. When you sit down and talk to your mother, uh, you know, what does she think of this journey that you have gone, you have gone through to where here, you know, you are, you're being the president of the Region Métis Council, you know, you're out, been part of this, this, this settlement for veterans where you were discharged from, you know, what does she uh, uh, what does she say you know like about your journey yeah and and you know she's uh, I, I'm happy to say she's proud of the work that I'm doing uh, I, I was just recently down in Washington where uh, we did the screening of a documentary called the fruit machine which is about um, uh, uh, gay lesbian bi trans people in the Canadian Civil Service um, and uh, while I was in Washington, we hosted an event at the embassy. Uh, I was just down last week visiting my parents, and, and my mom was bragging to everybody about, uh, <laughs> tell them what you did in Washington. <laughs> uh-huh. so, uh, yeah, so, uh, so it's, it's, it's nice that, uh, that she's fully accepting. Uh, I, I think she loves my partner more than she loves me sometimes. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh yeah no it's uh uh she's she's um uh, she's very supportive as is my father and uh, uh and I'm I'm lucky to have them uh, both on my side That's wonderful that's wonderful I know I mean cuz you know you never know what journey you're going to take but I I mean it's nice also that here at this point you're able to sit down and talk with her about it and she's able to see that you made it. I mean, you, it did get better. You went through these things, you got stronger from them, and, and here you are, you know, really going to be right around the corner, <laughs> mm-hmm. right around yes. the corner. Well, Todd, I want to thank you so much for being with me to, today. You've given me a lot to think about, a lot I want. I will be staying in touch with you because I want to talk to you more about it. And, um, I hope to see you before you leave Toronto, but hey, New Brunswick. I've been to Maine. If I can make it to Maine, I can make it to New Brunswick. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, uh, in June, uh, Pride Month starts on June 1st, and it's a full month mm-hmm. of activities here in Toronto. So uh, if you can make it up to Toronto, uh, I'll be here for the month of June. Um, and then it uh, sort of goes from June 1st to July 1st. Well, I look forward to, I look forward to talking to you more. I mean, This has been really great. I thank you so much. 
Thank you very much. I, I really appreciate uh, uh, the time uh, and our conversation, and I look forward to uh, meeting you soon. I want to thank today's guest, Todd Ross, a member of Canada's vibrant LGBTQ2 community. The City of Toronto celebrates Pride the entire month of June, so consider celebrating with our family to the north. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change, right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.